So there's no, hey, Alexa, where are my fasteners? As I say that, I'm worried something's going to happen to my house, actually. So I got to be careful when I say that. Well, my speaker just went off when you said that. Welcome to Make It, Move It, Sell It. On this podcast, I talk with company leaders about how they're modernizing the business of making, moving, and selling products, and of course, having fun along the way. I'm your host, Adam Honig, the CEO of Spiro.ai. We make amazing AI software for companies in the supply chain, but we're not talking about that today. Instead, today, we're talking with Joel Shoemaker, the VP of Marketing at the Elgin Fastener Group. Welcome to the podcast, Joe. Thanks, Adam. Pleasure to be with you. Yeah, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, let's just start tactical for a minute. Let's talk about fasteners. I mean, I get the sense that everything would fall apart if it wasn't for fasteners, but maybe you could just tell the folks at home here a little bit about what they are, who buys them, you know, what your customers are like, and so on. Fasteners are a critical part of mostly everything that's manufactured, from the glasses that you happen to be wearing to the chair that you're sitting in, and a number of instruments and technologies that go on beyond that. At EFG, we manufacture specialty fasteners. And the difference between that and something that you might walk down the aisle of a home center and see is the minute that you need something to be a little bit different, whether that's length or diameter or coating, et cetera, you would come to someone like EFG who can build a fastener to your print. You make fasteners to order, essentially, then, based upon... Okay. Yeah, and there's a number of characteristics and physical attributes that have to be factored in to make those properly for our end customer. And we service both OEM folks as well as larger distributors who ultimately then sell to OEMs. Gotcha. And I was reading that the market for fasteners is about $86 billion internationally. Does that sound right? Yeah, it does. It's amazing, right? They're used in things that you probably overlook every day and and don't realize. But the global market, we obviously play in a subset, which would be the North American market. And even then, there's really three big buckets. There's automotive, aerospace, and industrial. And we service primarily the industrial market. We do have some entryways into automotive with some of our key customers, but that's mostly for secondary things like roof racks on a car, et cetera, not critical engine components. Gotcha. Gotcha. It's really interesting. So $86 billion really jumped out at me because that's the size of the CRM software market too. I always think, wow, that's really big. And fasteners, you guys got us beat by a little bit, probably growing at about the same rate. Right, right. The the big difference is we have to sell millions and billions to realize significant revenue versus software package, et cetera. It's true. It's true. And when we sell new licenses software, we just turn them on. You guys actually have to make something. So it's it's really different. You know, and, and, and I don't know how much you know about fastener manufacturing, but it's everything starts as a coil of wire. So no matter what the end product is, it comes in. If you can envision a spool of thread just being very much larger and being wire, that's what everything starts at. Oh, yeah. I was in the factory of one of our customers that makes electrical conduit, and they start with those big spools and just kind of get it down to exactly the right width and encase it in plastic and do whatever with it. So it sounds sort of familiar. Exactly right. And the folks that work on those pieces of equipment are part scientists and part artists because there's a nuance in working on some of that equipment that's 
decades and decades old. Let's take the conversation up a little bit. So let's talk a little bit about the strategy um, at EFG. So, you know, you guys are making things to order. So it's a lot more specific than the commodity part of the business. But how do you differentiate the company? Really, our, our ability to service our customer base through the widest product offering of specialty fasteners and also licensed fasteners. So you've heard of things like Phillips or Torx. We're able to manufacture those under license for our customers, which is really important. We also offer what we call blended sourcing, and that allows us to offer the lowest total cost of ownership to our customer base. Customers that would maybe formerly be sourcing things globally or from an Asian market can now source through us. We'll handle all the logistics, all the quality control. And when there's a demand spike and product is stuck on the water, we can turn on our machines and and meet that demand spike with domestic-made production. And then the last pillar of our stool from a value prop is our ability to do all of that with industry-leading quality and customer support. Our cost of poor quality is less than one half percent. And what that means for our customers is they can be sure that they have guaranteed uptime so that they're not losing revenue because they're waiting on a small screw that's holding up their production process. Yeah, I've heard a lot of horror stories about manufacturing lines being down for lack of all kinds of components. Hopefully, a lot of that is behind us at this point. Let's go to the manufacturing location for a second. So uh, is most of your manufacturing in the U.S. then, or is it split between here and abroad? We, we do all of our manufacturing domestically in one of seven different locations, largely in the Midwest. But we have contract manufacturing with some Asian sources to offer a blended model for those customers that so desire. The overwhelming majority of what we do is domestically made. Gotcha. And we, we've been talking with people, I've been kind of hearing a trend of more and more production being done in the U.S., though, or at least in North America, to avoid the transportation issues as well as who knows what else is going to happen. Yep, that's true. There's always been a kind of a question mark around quality when it comes to globally sourced product. But now you layer on top of that the cost of freight from a container being $3,000 jumping to $20,000 to ship product. And then you add in the complexity of delivery with delivery schedules being all over the board. It really has a lot of companies looking to insource production again back in the States. Yeah. And I think that trend is definitely going to continue. The challenge that I've been hearing from a lot of people is actually the labor side of the equation in terms of staffing facilities, whether it's warehousing or manufacturing or anything like that has been a bit of a challenge. Yeah. And we're not immune. We've experienced some of the challenges that many folks in the marketplace have seen from a labor standpoint. For our perspective, it was a very limited window or more limited. So we've come through that tunnel and we're on the other side and we're enjoying really, really robust levels of production and staffing. And we continue to hire for key roles even right now. Is there any sort of approaches that you've taken to the labor market that you feel like is unique or interesting for folks? Like, for example, we were talking with somebody on the podcast who was hiring seasonal farm labor to help get everything done because they were like, well, during the winter, everybody in Wisconsin or wherever they were don't have anything to do. So it's a great overflow capability for us. Is there anything interesting that you guys you know, do I, like I wish that? I, I wish I had some secret sauce for you, but it's really been, we've explored a number of options, as you mentioned, with bringing folks in that maybe were in non-related markets to help out from a labor standpoint. But at the end of the day, it just became how we could rally around this notion of taking care of our employees. And that really put us over the edge because we were competing with not only other fastener companies, but non-related. There were automotive people, 
There were manufacturing um, RVs that were paying a lot of money to direct labor. So we had to compete with people outside of our industry. Oh, I'm sure you're probably competing with Amazon exactly. on some level too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So so we really put a lot of focus and a lot of effort in improving our benefits packages, improving our wages, improving our work-life balance for our teams. And that's really resonated very strongly. Speaking about Amazon, what, what are you hearing from the customer side of things? We've been talking with a lot of folks who've been saying that customer expectations are being shaped by people like Amazon today. And even though you're an industrial good supplier, that people still have an expectation of tracking packages, knowing when things are going to arrive, quality levels. Do you feel like that's going on in your part of the world? You know, it's a great question. We haven't seen the expectation bar raised to an Amazon level. However, I think that it's fair to say that as new workers come into the workforce and other ones get promoted and they're being backfilled by the next generation, there is an expectation in their mind that people should perform in an Amazon way. That's not to say that we should deliver in 24 hours or deliver in a three-day window. It's not realistic from a manufacturing perspective. But to have information available at their fingertips I think is an expectation that we and many others are going to have to meet in the coming future. So there's no, hey, Alexa, where are my fasteners? As I say that, I'm worried something's going to happen in my house, actually. So I got to be careful when I say that. Well, my speaker just went off when you said that. (laughs) Yeah, no, I, I would think that as of right now, it's probably not the expectation that that would be the case. But if I put myself in the seat of a consumer, I would want to have access to things like product history, order history, mm-hmm. and configuration capability without having to talk to somebody if I so choose not to. All of those things are being worked on at various levels in our industry. And in fact, we are uh, working on a, a product configurator, which will be delivered at some point here that would give those customers that ability online. And so from an e-commerce perspective, it sounds like this is your first foray into that. Is that true? I would say that's fair. It's a little non-standard e-commerce. When I think of e-commerce, I think of product category A with a Mm -hmm. known SKU number that you can put on a shelf. Because everything that we do is custom, it's not expected that we would have things on the shelf built to a customer's print. But we should be Mm -hmm. able to give the customer the ability to configure that online, and then we can quickly price it they can agree to it, and we can get it into production. E-commerce for us feels a little different than maybe an Amazon would be with a finished product. Right, right. And what about reordering? Is it common that if you know a customer creates a certain type of fastener that they need and you do a run of a million or two million or whatever it is, like next year they're going to be like, okay, now I need six million. So they could maybe buy that online or something? Yeah, that's the hope. Yeah, right. So they can look up a previous order with a unique part number tied to that configuration which dates back to that drawing that they supplied. And then it's mm-hmm. as simple as putting in, you know, a request for 20 million more. Uh, more right, just a function right. of verifying the, the current cost and processing the order. Yeah, that makes sense. We could just add an extra zero onto it. So every time they order, it just goes up by a factor of 10. I like uh, I'll make a think. note. I like the way. Yeah. yeah. Let's talk about marketing for a minute. So you're the VP of marketing for this fastener company, not an industry known for innovation and marketing, but tell me about some of the interesting things you guys are doing in the space. It's very difficult to stand out through a traditional sense. There's not a lot of publications that cater to this market. In fact, there's really three. And Google AdWords and things online are nice, and we certainly do those. 
Social media for us has become very, very big. And it's big for a few reasons. One, not a lot of folks in our space are active in it. And mm-hmm. we try to be very active in it, putting out posts a couple times a day, every day of the week. Uh, we try to make those a little bit fun, certainly engaging, informative. We rally around the concept of how now, wow, educational, something that's going to throw them or, or surprise them, and then informational. And that served us well. Our following has grown, our interaction has grown, and frankly, our level of top-line funnel inquiries has grown. What we're finding from both our web presence and our social media presence is that we get we get inroads at the top of the funnel for more nebulous kind of, hey, help me understand what you do and how you can help me conversations, and very actionable bottom of the funnel. I have an immediate need for part number one, two, three, quantity of a million, give me a price. Those get turned around very quickly with our quoting team and we're able to win new business. So we see digital, whether it's online or social, as being a very strong differentiator for us in the marketplace. The thing about digital, though, is it is you're not only are you trying to capture the attention of you know your potential buyers, but you're competing with everybody. I mean, you're competing with McDonald's and Coca-Cola and stuff like that. So how do you break through that landscape to get people to pay attention to you? We've got very specific language. We've got very relatable content. The people that are searching for our kind of product or our kind of service, I don't think that we compete with the McDonald's as much as I would love to. We're carving out awareness for our brand through the content that we generate. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a there's an acronym in sales of always be closing, ABC. Sure. And in marketing, we we like ABE, always be educating. And so we put that out from a content standpoint to build trust and to create awareness. And I think that that's endeared us to, you know, our new customer counts have risen year over year. Our cross-brand sales, because we have seven product categories, so we have seven Mm -hmm. product brands, our cross-brand sales hit record levels last year. That's really tied to our ability to educate our customer base because largely they came in on one platform, they had one need. But once we got them into the fold, we were able to talk to them, educate them, entice them to expand their buy with us or share a wallet. And digital is the way we've done that. Talking with a lot of people in manufacturing, it seems like building relationships with customers is super important. So do you see this strategy as like enhancing the relationship with them? I think so. I mean, I think your example of Amazon earlier is a great one. I've never, ever talked to an Amazon employee. I've said hi to the driver and given them a tip, sure. But from a deciding to order standpoint, never had a conversation with them. But I have strong brand loyalty to Amazon. And their their entire relationship with me is digital over my phone or over my PC. So I think the better we become at building those relationships by listening to what our customers say is important and delivering the content and the tools that they need or that they want to be more effective in their communication with us, that will build loyalty, that will build trust. And hopefully that will lead to continued business. You know, I once did have a conversation with somebody at Amazon. I, you can find an 800 number to call them. I don't remember exactly what the circumstance was, but some order went really awry. And I'm like, I'm going to call them. And I got the number and I spoke to a perfectly pleasant lady and got everything resolved. But it was super weird. Felt like this shouldn't be happening. Like they've done everything else wrong that you have to call somebody now. Exactly. Exactly. 
So speaking about digital and relationships, I want to spend a little bit of time talking about AI. I mean, we're obviously, you know, an AI company. We're spending a lot of time with it ourselves. But I'm really interested from like a manufacturing and industrial company perspective. What's your perspective on all of this AI that has suddenly become very present for everybody? So it's exploded, right? My birthday happens to be on November 30th, the same day that ChatGPT launched. And initially, I, I didn't think much of it. And then two weeks into it, enough people had been talking about it that I checked it out and I am all in. I believe AI could be game-changing. Uh, there's a lot of concern in the marketing community of will it replace marketers? Will it render obsolete roles that exist today? I don't know that I subscribe to that. I look at AI as a tool, a very powerful tool that in the hands of a capable user can be magnitudes of capability above what they're doing today. AI is a tool in the same way as a paintbrush is a tool. But if you give me a paintbrush, you're not going to get a Picasso out of me. It has to be utilized in the right way. And the people that can develop the right skill sets from a prompt generation standpoint to get the most out of the tool are the ones who are going to elevate themselves and leapfrog the competition. I completely agree with you. I think that a lot of the low value things that we just have to do in marketing can be done easily. And that gives us more time to focus on sort of the more exciting stuff too. But I do wonder in a world where the machine can write great copy for you all the time, are we going to be more editors than writers? You know, and if we're going to be more editors, do we need less people doing stuff too then? You know, I think there's some truth to that. I don't know if you type something in chat GPT now and you asked it to put together a marketing campaign, would you be satisfied with what you received? There's still a lot of work to be done in nuancing the information that comes mm -hmm. out, refining the information that comes out. I certainly agree that for, I'll say, more transactional kind of tasks, AI will replace that function. But the challenge is to elevate our game, right? The challenge is to think more strategically and not transactionally. AI will allow us to take that part of our day away, perhaps, and let us focus on the bigger picture on how we can make our brands more engaging, more loyal from a customer-based standpoint, and certainly more relevant than the competitors that we're up against today. And so are you using this technology in the business today? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, like most, I have ChatGPT. We've also started putting out videos with a product called Synthesia. That's gone fairly well. And uh, we have Copy AI and, and a number of other tools that we're using to help us in other things with social media efforts and just general information, arming our sales team with better responses for commonly occurring objectives during the sales cycle. AI is right, a right. way of kind of brainstorming those items as well. I'll tell you another use case that I discovered that I was not aware of, but it's for people who have dyslexia too. Things like chat GPT can be a real game changer. So we recently introduced a new feature in Spiro where you can just basically give Spiro the gist of an email and it'll write out a nice professional email using the same technology behind the chat GPT and got a call from one of our users. And he was like, I've got dyslexia. You know, I'm 45 years old. I've been writing business emails my whole life, but it's a struggle and I, I hesitate to do that. And I just want to thank you because now, like, I don't have to have anxiety about, like, what am I writing? Is it going to be bad? You know, am I going to look dumb wow. to people? That's awesome. And I was like, yeah, 
who you know i never would have thought about that that's incredible i, I think there's a lot of a lot of ways that this is going to go and use cases are going to come up that we were like exactly like who could have thought it you're already on the cutting edge of this stuff i mean your 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 platform is generating connections and making assessments of data that otherwise would have gone undiscovered. Oh yeah. You know, you're, you're blazing trails with this stuff every day. Folks like us are just trying to catch up. We're running to try to get relevant and you're setting the bar. Well, thank you for that. I mean, we, we try, uh, but it's, for me, it's the unexpected, like obviously like, Oh, Spiro can tell you that this customer isn't ordering and you should give him a call. Like, very valuable, but sort of like straight down the fairway kind of stuff. These other things that are just kind of coming up, the dyslexia that I'm like super amazed by, you know, yeah, maybe because it is a surprise. That's always a bit of interest to me when things are unknown. Give it two days and you'll discover some new thing that just came out. I haven't seen anything this rapidly advancing before. Well, I'll tell you what, you know, I'm hearing is coming next. And this is kind of where it gets crazy. I don't know if you're aware, but the AI is also really good at writing code. And so our engineers are using the AI to help us accelerate product development, which is fantastic. And I haven't been a programmer since the 90s, and even I can use it to write great quality code, which is crazy. But what's really crazy is the researchers who are training the next generation of AI models to train the next generation of AI models. And so once we kind of get to the point where it can be teaching itself things that way, I don't know what's going to happen. If you think it's going fast now, just wait until that happens. Oh, boy, you're right. Oh, my gosh. Sounds like the Matrix. <laughs> a little bit, a little bit. The good news is, you know, even though the, the AI tech is super exciting, it is kind of very limited in its way. Like if you ask ChatGPT to make a value judgment about something, you give it an email and you say, hey, how important is this email? Let me tell you, I've been trying to get it to give me good responses to that, and it's not doing it. it it's very positive all the time on stuff. So there you go. I don't, I don't think it's going to replace our good judgment, which is probably one of the most important things. Relationships and judgments, I would say, are kind of what keep us all in business. I agree. I agree. Well, listen, Joe, this is this has been a great conversation. It's really been fascinating to hear about the uses of fasteners and just how you're thinking about innovation in an industrial context, because I don't feel like that gets a lot of attention in the market today. So this has been really, really great. So I really appreciate your coming on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me and for forwarding you know, ahead this conversation around marketing and AI. Yeah. And as a reminder to our listeners, you can find every episode of the Make It Move It, Sell It podcast at Spiro.ai backslash podcast. While you're thinking about it, maybe it makes sense to subscribe to the show or maybe give us a, a good rating. I don't know, Joe, do you think people should give us a good rating if they like the content? Of course they should. Absolutely. Share it on social media, just like Joe does with all of his campaigns. Tell your friends. It's anybody you got. But really great talking with you, Joe. And thank you to everybody for tuning in. And we're looking forward to speaking with you at the next episode. Thank you so much. Thank you.